The Courage to Lead, Episode 65. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. Um, I'm having a great time, loving what I do, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, please help me welcome my guest, Mohammed Anwar. Mohammed is the youngest of five children and was born and raised in Saudi Arabia to Indian parents from Bengaluru. He graduated from the University of Houston. Go Cougs, right? Yes. <laughs> I was told to put that in there. Uh, with a, a BS in computer science and started Softway at the age of 20, where he still serves as president and CEO. When Softway began in 2003, it was a small company that created websites for merchants in Houston. It has grown to a business-to-employee solution company that offers Culture as a Service, or CAAS, through its Seneca leadership experience. Culture plus digital products, technology, and internal communication services for clients across the globe. The company has over 200 employees in its offices in Houston and Bengaluru. Mohammed lives in Sugarland, Texas, with his amazing wife, Yulia, a five-time Olympic medalist in diving from Russia, and his beautiful children, Sufia and Moshin. Yes. In his spare time, he enjoys fitness, watching college sports, and butchering American idioms. So what yeah, don't, idiom don't, don't, don't ask me about idioms because I well, don't I, do a good job at it. I, I think it's phenomenal because my, my wife used to work with a guy who, uh-huh. he was a project manager, and he said, all right, let's, let's put this project to sleep. And we're going, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't want to put it to sleep. That means like, right? Yeah. No, you put your dog to sleep when they're too old and can't move. You put right. a project to bed or put this issue to bed. So. Yeah. Yes. So can you think of one that maybe you butchered that you learned quickly? Oh man. I keep saying um um you throat the choke instead of you you have one choke one sorry see I'm messing it up again. I uh, one throat to choke. Okay. I keep saying one choke one to choke throat. To throat. <laughs> and I mess it up usually and um I, I struggle with that one. Uh, and I seem to want to use that <laughs> a lot for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, that's like an example. And I think I I take uh, these idioms and I look at them literally, like kind of like you just gave an example, put the project to sleep. Yeah. I think what I would have heard in that is put, a, put the project to bed. And I look at the bed as sleeping, you know, it's what you sleep on. So you associate that and you're like, put the project to sleep. So I can see that happening, and especially because, you know, English isn't my first language. And sometimes, I, and also the culture, like where I grew up, these, even if it's English was what I spoke most of my time, I've not heard these type of idioms. And so when I hear some of them, I'm like, what is that? Like, sure. that, what does it literally mean? Or what is it trying to mean? I don't know what's going on. So right. I, I really struggle with idioms. No problem. Well, I'm sure in, in even in your culture growing up, you probably had idioms that would not immediately make sense to us, right? Yes. So yes, just, you're probably right. <laughs> and I know I know people who spoke English all their life, and they still mess it up. <laughs> so yes. understand, no problem. All right, we're going to talk uh, more about kind of how you got started um, forming of your company. Also want to talk about your book called Love as a Business Strategy. 
Uh, but before we get started, I have 10 questions that I ask all of my guests. Now, these are questions that were made famous on the television show Inside the Actor's Studio, where host okay. James Lipton asks these questions of his uh, Hollywood guests. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Got it. If you're ready, question number one, what is your favorite word? Awesome. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Horrible. Okay. What turns you on? Coffee. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, what turns you off? A boring movie. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Good. What sound or noise do you love? I love music in general. So I like uh, electronic music. Okay. Cool. And what sound or noise do you hate? Lawnmower early in the morning in your neighborhood. <laughs> and they always seem to start right when I get on online to record. All right. Question number seven. What is your favorite curse word? It's a modified version of BS. I say BC. <laughs> As in bull crap. Okay. <laughs> Good deal. All right. That works. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You know, I've always wanted to be a pilot, um, a commercial pilot. So yeah, that would be a profession I'd like to try. Very cool. What profession would you not like to be? A politician. <laughs> All right. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You've been good. <laughs> Those are interesting questions. <laughs> I enjoyed them. I told you they'd be fun. All right. We're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to talk about uh, how you got your start. Um, sure. We'll talk a little bit about cougars, but not too much. And then I want to talk about <laughs> Softway, your company, your book and uh, see if we can butcher some more American idioms, all right? So, Let's do it. All right, so stick with us. We'll be right back after this, so stay tuned. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. All right, and we are back with my guest, Mohammed Anwar. Thank you again for agreeing to be a guest on the show. Um, my pleasure. Yeah. So when exactly did you, your parents uh, move over to the U.S.? Actually, my parents did not move the same time I moved here. Okay. Okay. So I moved here when I was 16. Um, I moved uh, from, so actually I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. I lived there till I was 14. Okay. Then I went to India for schooling for a year. And then I moved to Kansas when I was 16 to complete my um, high school from a Catholic boarding school up That's in Kansas. quite a change. 
Yes, it's uh, definitely going from the most conservative country potentially in the world to India, which is the biggest democracy. And then all of a sudden to Kansas into a small town, which is very popular, by the way, called Atchison, Kansas, because it's the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. Um, And I went to a Catholic boarding school uh, up there to finish up my high school. It's called Moore Hill Prep School. Moore Hill Prep. So you moved to the U.S. by yourself? Yes. I I moved uh, to go to school and stay in, you know, I was was an on-campus student, so I lived in the dorms while I was finishing up my high school. It was a boarding school. Wow. Very cool. That took a lot of courage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd have to say that um, fortunately I had elder siblings who had all left home when they were 14, 15 to go uh, pursue further education because as an expat living in Saudi Arabia, they don't have a lot of higher education uh, opportunities or universities that are meant for expats and the dependence of expats. So you have to end up going abroad to study. So my parents generally would send us to India or the United States for education. Um, so I happened to go to both places, um, but I ended up living in the U.S. since then. Excellent. Yeah, I'm moving out when you're 14 to 16 years old. That's. I mean, I, I know people who are in their 30s, they still live at home <laughs> with their parents. <laughs> I don't understand, but that happens sometimes. So tell me about Softway. How did you get started? Yeah, so <clears throat> after finishing up my high school, I moved to Houston And I went to University of Houston. Now, this is my opportunity to get close to family because at the time, two of my siblings were living in Houston and I was tired of uh, staying in the dorms. So I moved to Houston to be closer to my family. And as a result, when I was pursuing my computer science degree and it was around 2003, I was looking for jobs um, in the computer science field like programming. And that was you know, the in thing before 2000. And after 2000, um, a lot of the programming jobs were being shipped to India and different parts of the world. And so as I was getting close to my graduation, I found out that it was not easy to find a job as a developer because they were like, you know, all jobs are being shipped to India. And so my brother gave me this idea where he said, hey, why don't you start a business, take advantage of your Indian heritage and where your parents are from, which is Bangalore, India. And why don't you start a company where you get projects and outsource the projects to uh, India, hire developers there and start a business, like an offshore model business. Yeah, nice. And so I got together with my brother and, uh, and this brother uh, was living in India at the time. He quit his job from IBM and decided to start our business in India and in Houston. And so in Houston, I I went around to this wholesale center, like a street where they have like all kinds of wholesalers and they sell novelty products and furniture and everything. So I walked the street and just went door to door soliciting and said, hey, would you like an e-commerce website? I can wow. build you one. And, um, you know, everybody said no. <laughs> eventually I offered one guy the opportunity to build a website for free. I built it for free, launched it, and then went back to every single store that said no to me and said, you know, that guy across the street built a website with me and you're missing out. And then they all gave me their website projects. And that's kind of how the genesis of Softway started. And, um, you know, been 
started the business in yeah 2003 while I was still pursuing my computer science degree and 18 years later here we are uh, still wow. in business very cool and about when during that time did you met your wife yes so um, at U of H um, in 2000 2000 is when I started and in 2001 I met my wife because my wife had just enrolled at University of Houston uh, after she just finished Sydney 2000 Olympics. She was recruited as a, uh, for the swimming and diving team at U of H. And I happened to work at the uh, athletic department and I used to tutor math, chemistry, physics for all the athletes um, as a student tutor for them. And so she was one of my students and that's how I met my wife. Yeah. Cool. Good job. Yes. Thank you. So, um, so I, I love the idea of, you know, the software, right? Creating websites, everything like that. But then it kind of morphed. Your business morphed yes. and grew into a business to employee solutions. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. <clears throat> so we started off as a technology slash digital agency type business with the offshore model. And it was quite successful. We, at one point in time, had reached over 300 employees. Um, and in about 10 years of running the business, I believe I had hit the pinnacle of success. I had, um, you know, reached what you would say an entrepreneur would dream of. I was, uh, you know, driving my fancy cars and I did go get my pilot's license and fly, <clears throat> you know, little Cessnas around Texas. And, you know, I was uh, living the life, the American dream, especially for an immigrant to this country. And, you know, had over 300 employees. And I'd say I was very successful by the age of 30. Oh. But then all of a sudden, it just all came crashing down. Mm-hmm. Our business was on the verge of bankruptcy. And we were um, hemorrhaging cash, but also I was losing my top performers and top talent. And the company was in real desperate situations. And in that moment, I decided to lay off over 100 employees um, between India and the US. And I did so in a very inhumane way. And um, from that experience, I really did not feel very good. And I felt a whole lot of feelings going through that experience. And in a moment of introspection, I recognized that this was all my fault. It wasn't anybody else's fault. It wasn't our customers. It wasn't the economy. It wasn't the industry. It was all clearly boiling down to my selfish attitude and my poor behaviors, my my behaviors of being an oppressor and really I, I was just a bad CEO and a terrible boss. I was very condescending. I mistreated people. Um, I took people for granted. And, you know, I believed success. I had hit the pinnacle of success and I must know what I'm doing. So, and the behaviors that I really adopted were those that I observed in the corporate workplace with the people I interacted with, you know, who were generally my customers. And I saw how hierarchy, power dynamics, politics, toxicity. Like at that time, I didn't think of it that way. I looked at it as, oh, this is how a leader is supposed to be. And I think um, I, I had that big moment of realization that, wait a minute, 
this is my fault. This is me. I've almost got our business to go out of, you know, go, go into bankruptcy. And I almost lost everything I had built over the course of 10 years. Um, and well, that yeah, seems common that's, that, that yes. business, business owners, they, first of all, you, you manage the way that you have seen management done, mm-hmm. right? You, you look at the, I know people who have bought companies from people and they're running those companies just like the previous owner did, because that's, that's the model that they had, or they used yeah. to work in the family business. That was the model they had. So they keep doing it and stuff. Um, and having to come to a point where you lay off, reduce mm-hmm. your, your headcount is difficult for anybody in any situation. Um, yeah. what, what was it that made you turn inward and, and, and figure Got it. you know, that it's, that it was you. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is where I have to talk about the cougars. So okay. you're going to have to bear with me. So, you know, two weeks after the layoffs, I happened to receive tickets to go watch the University of Houston football game um, in late 2015. This is November 2015. And uh, that football game was highly anticipated because cougars were on a 9-0 and season thus far and this was their 10th game and a potential 10th victory against a formidable you know memphis uh tigers uh top 25 ranked team and <clears throat> i was excited to go to the game because i wanted something of a distraction from everything that i had been going through because i was really down and i was looking forward to the game and as i went to the game with my brother to watch uh going to the fourth quarter uh, we were losing by 20 points and we were playing with a third string quarterback. Mm-hmm. And I was, again, ext- incredibly disappointed because the likelihood of us winning that night was 0.1% uh, as per ESPN game tracker. <laughs> and so, you know, in that moment, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to leave early. I don't want to stay through another disappointing night. But something inside of me told me, no, stay back, <clears throat> be there to watch your team. And stay till the end. And i glad I did because we ended up winning that night by a point with less than 30 seconds left on the clock. And that ended up, that became our 10th victory of the season. And uh, the team was being led at that point in time with a rookie head coach, Tom Herman. And uh, so I was really inspired by that win. And I started to see softly through the eyes of the Houston Cougar football team. And I started to envision our own fourth quarter financial comeback, uh, just like the Houston Cougars had. And so I went back home that Saturday night and I was ready to go back to work on Monday morning. And I'm like, I'm just going to fight. And so I was inspired by that. So I decided to log on to the press conference that Tom Herman had. And in that press conference, it's what he said that turned that switch on for me. One of the reporters asked, hey, you talk a lot about love in your sports team and what is it all about? And how does that have to do anything with you guys winning? And he's like, basically, he was like, it has everything to do with us winning. And he began to explain where he said they have a culture of love and support in their football team, which is genuine. And it isn't the love you bro kind of love. It's the genuine, you have my heart in your hand kind of love. And when you have that kind of love for one another, you are on that field, not fighting for yourself, but fighting for your brothers around you. And that love is what builds a championship teams. You don't have to have 
talented players to go win championships. You need to have love for one another to go win championship teams. And he basically went on to say how he's seen teams with super talented players and cannot be championship teams. But a team like Houston Cougars, where they barely get two-star, three-star recruits, they are a championship-level team because of the culture of love. And so when I heard that, I was like, what the hell is going on? I, what is this culture of love? And I began to introspect and I asked myself, do I love my team? Like the way Coach Herman is talking about his team. And in the moment of truth, I realized I don't, I don't love my team, let alone I don't care for my team. And that's when I had that moment of realization that I was very selfish and I, my behaviors were unlike that of a culture of love. And so from that moment on, I began my journey of trying to transform myself to be a leader that puts the needs of others before mine and takes care of others and loves um, the team members and creates an environment of culture of love and belonging. And that's what switched. And as a, as part of my journey, as I went on this journey, I did it for myself because I didn't want to ask anybody else to do it unless I started to walk the talk before I talked the walk. And in about two to three years of being on this journey, my leaders, uh, my other leaders at the company started to observe and see that this wasn't just a flavor of the month and that I had genuinely started to change and take care of our teams and do things for them that they had never seen me do before. And so they joined me in, in the journey of also trying to transform. And we started to host these uh, retreats and training and experiences for the rest of the organization so that they also may begin on this journey of building the behaviors and the culture of love. And as a result, our business started to thrive. We went from being almost bankrupt to not just surviving, but thriving. We tripled our revenues uh, within three years. And not just that, we also uh, increased our EBITDA with a differential of 47% and reduced our attrition from 30% to 12%. And all of that is attributed to the transformation of our culture that began with my behavior transformation as a leader of that company. And so when that happened, our clients noticed and they, yeah. So they noticed so much so that they came to me, one of my fortune 10 clients came to me and said, Hey, Mohammed, we want what you have, what, what you have in your company, what we see, how you treat each other, how you guys behave, the work you guys produce, we want that for our own company. Would you be willing to help us with our, our leadership transformation and our culture transformation? And I basically said, that's not the business we're in. We're in the business of technology services. And they were like, no, we know. But they insisted that we do it and not the traditional management consulting firms that they had resolved to in the past because they said nothing would work when they uh, went through culture initiatives through the big four management consulting firms and so forth. So they, they insisted, they took a chance on us and they gave us the opportunity. And so that's where we ended up creating what we call the Seneca leaders experience and took 1400 leaders across the globe through a leadership transformation experience and help transform 
cultures for over 10,000 employee uh, business units. And from there, we found our calling, our purpose, which was to bring back humanity to the workplace. And so since 2018, we've been in the business of bringing back humanity to the workplace. And we do that through offering culture as a service. And we are a technology company that focuses on business to employee solutions. So that's how the genesis of today's software came into existence was through our own lived experience and our own story of change and transformation. That's amazing. That's yeah, it's a great story. And when people see success like that, of course, they're going to come knocking at the door saying, do that for us, right? Do that for us. Very cool. Now we talked earlier, you have a, a digital product, right? That kind of help with this. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. So we have uh, so we have facilitated experiences, which we call Seneca leaders, which is where we take leaders through um, workshops, uh, two days long sometimes. And, and the idea is we take our attendees through an introspective journey by sharing our own lived experiences, leader to leader, not consultant to leader, not academics to leader, not talking case studies, but actual examples of our lived experiences of how we failed and what we did wrong. And through that, they build an empathic connection with us as facilitators and they start to see themselves through our journey and they go through introspection and they let their guards down and start to realize and recognize how they may be behaving in ways that are detrimental to their culture or their business. So that's one suite of solutions. We, those are Seneca facilitated experiences. Mm-hmm. Then we have digital products, which are a culture plus suite of products, which are made to help um, the members of your organization go through self-based experiences to go on their behavior journey so we have an application called Culture Bridge, which is a DNI social awareness application. Where again we have, it's like a, uh, it's like a publication style filled with lived experiences from different diverse perspectives and diversity of element, elements of diversity. Mm-hmm. So you can build social awareness through how a parent caregiver must be going through in their life during the pandemic or how a person who is an immigrant to this country, what are their lived experiences? Not to kind of come from an angle of, uh, we don't come from an angle of racism or any of that type of stuff. We come from an angle of love where we can help people see the commonality from people from different perspectives and different backgrounds. So that's a self-paced experience called Culture Bridge. And then we have another product called Culture Counter, which is our measurement tool, which allows us to measure culture change and behaviors inside of organizations and how they attribute to business outcomes. So that's a culture measurement uh, product. And then we have another mobile application product called uh, uh, Seneca Go, which is accompanied with Seneca Lived Experiences. We call it your executive coach in your pocket. It allows you to have your phone give you constant reminders, micro commitments, introspective journals, and micro learning opportunities to keep you on your journey of behavior change after you have realized and committed to change. So those are some of the examples of our products and solutions that are meant to help organizations go on their um, culture transformation journey. Very cool. You've been busy. (laughs) 
Yes. That's awesome. So measuring, measuring cultural change, mm-hmm. how, that can't be easy. How did you figure out how to measure cultural change? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the number one question I get asked by executives when I reach out to them to help them figure out a culture transformation program. You see, culture is an intangible thing. It's very hard to put your finger on. It's this feeling, right? Like how it's like, uh, I know we describe it sometimes as it's the force like in Star Wars, right? Like you don't, it's there, but you can't put your finger on it, but you feel it. And that's how culture is. Culture is a feeling of how you feel and how you get treated and so forth. So while it's really difficult to measure culture, what you can measure is experiences. How do people experience behaviors from their coworkers, from their leaders, from their bosses, similar to how you would measure customer experience or customer satisfaction? Similarly, you can measure employee experience and employee satisfaction from a virtue of behaviors. And so we built this whole measurement model that measures um, what we call our culture pillars. How do you experience inclusion, empathy, vulnerability, trust, empowerment, and forgiveness? And do you experience that? And and how do you experience it? And we measure that through a Likert scale model. And we attribute that through um, some trade secret formulas to try and attribute that back to business outcomes. So when we meet with executives, we're not only able to show them, here's how your culture is moving in the right direction, but here's how it's actually impacting your business outcomes and goals as well. So we have a full measurement suite um, and model and framework that allows us to do that. Very cool. Yeah, because culture is huge. And a lot of businesses don't realize how important that culture is. Um, they don't see it equating to business and productivity. It's it's the soft skills. It's the, you know, coloring yeah. and balloons and, you know, happiness and music and everything yeah. like that. It's like, no, it's so much more. And I was talking to uh, a guy that was on the, the podcast uh, about a month or so ago about leadership and culture go hand in hand. They're almost opposite sides of the same coin. You can't really have a good, strong company culture if you don't have good, strong leadership. Agreed. Absolutely agree with that statement you said. (laughs) And vulnerability. I mean, how do you, that's got to be another thing to overcome, right? Because as as managers, we want to feel like we're in control. We want to feel like we have all the answers, right? People are looking up to us. To get them to be vulnerable enough to say, yeah, I'm the one who's causing this mm-hmm. problem. That's That's got to be tough too. Oh, I think it's incredibly tough. And for me, uh, for many years, I practiced invincible leadership, at least a perception of it, right? And I think many leaders live in this world where we're supposed to feel like we know everything. We are right all the time. We cannot be wrong. And what we say goes and unfortunately it's this elite group (laughs) of people that think they must know it all and i lived in that intellectually arrogant state of mind for many years and that is something i unfortunately learned from the other leaders i interacted with and the hardest thing for leaders but most likely leaders but also anybody else out there is being able to be vulnerable. And by vulnerability, we don't mean sharing your deepest, darkest secrets. It's as simple as being able to say, you know what? I messed up. 
mm-hmm. I apologize. I That's screwed huge. up. That is yeah. huge. If, if the leader can actually say, this was my fault and I messed up, you know, I mean, it gives the employees the idea that, hey, I guess it wouldn't be so bad if, if I admit, you know, because a lot of times employees, if they think they're going to get, you know, trounced upon or something, they're hiding whatever they did wrong, sliding it under the, under the carpet. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So not only are you, uh, by that moment of being vulnerable and owning up to your mistakes as the leader of your organization, you are now number one, changing your perception that you are human, just like everyone else. And secondly, you are giving permission to the rest of your organization to let them know that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be wrong and learn from it. And thirdly, you are now creating an empathic connection between you and your rest of your organization, which now opens up uh, trust, improves trust between you and your leader or, or your staff. And all of this, like all those six pillars that I said we measure behaviors on, they're all interconnected. And so if there's also unforgiveness that might exist, because I may, I have done this a lot. Like I've misbehaved with my teams. I verbally attacked them. I've emotionally even abused them by tarnishing their work or their workmanship. And by me being vulnerable and admitting to my mistakes, now I'm opening opportunities of forgiveness, giving our team members an opportunity to say, you know what? I I find it in my heart to forgive because he's apologizing. He's taking ownership. And so by this, you're able to create an environment of love and care with each other. And by, by love, it doesn't mean just being a nice culture or nice organization. It's being able to address these humanistic problems and issues you face at the workplace, whether we like it or not. And so that's how I see vulnerability, such a big part, but yet the hardest thing for leaders to demonstrate. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, we hear businesses all the time talk about, oh, we're like family, our people, right? We're like mm-hmm. family. Well, most families are dysfunctional. <laughs> you hopefully have a better situation than than just family. You don't want a family to hold animosity for years. You don't want a family to, you know, avoid each other. Same thing in business. You can't have that. You can't be productive. You can't, you know, if you want your employees engaged, they have to feel like they're valued. And and part of that is, you know, you listen to what they say. Um, you take their ideas into account when you're doing yeah. things. Like you said, also have that vulnerability to say, I screwed up. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the family analogy has been abused yeah. in the in the workplace environment to where a lot of people will come and say, but I am not your family. Right. So so I, I've been I've been actually asked that question. So when I when I bring this up, I'm bringing it up because I was put on the spot by one of my Seneca leaders attendees and said well, you talk of family, but I just want you to know I am not your family if I work at the workplace. And that's when I I kind of agreed uh, that makes sense because of how it's been abused uh, in the workplace environment sometimes, but because we don't live to the values of families, even if we do. But So I switched to the concept of love of a sports team. When you're on a sports team and you love your teammates, that's the kind of love, right? And it's tough love coach is going to come out there and he's going to practice tough love. He's going to push you and he's going to push you because he loves you and wants to see you succeed. And if you don't live up to it, if you misbehave, if you screw up, you're going to pay consequences for it too. 
There is tough love. There is going to be suicide runs if you mess up. There's going to be, you know, benching you on the uh, on the bench for not doing what you're supposed to do. So I use the sports analogy to really explain the culture of love and support for one another um, from a sports team standpoint, because then the tough love, the ability to understand how you can have difficult conversations, how you are fighting for the team and not yourself, all of that beces a lot more easy for people to understand. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I've moved over to. Yeah, yes. And holding each other. Each other kind of. On a team. Now I know yeah. my wife and I, uh, we've been together 20 some odd years. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. She's going to go, you don't know how long we've been together. It's been 30 something. <laughs> we've been married for about 22. We argue, but it's not like, like you see fighting with a, a coworker or something like that. We're arguing to get to the same result. She's coming from one angle. I'm coming from another. When you argue like that, you, your feelings don't get hurt, right? Yes. Because you know, you're both working towards the same thing. It's just, I, I need to be heard at, at this moment or whatever. A lot of times in businesses, you have people who they immediately take offense. Yep. And, and I use the, the term take offense because I can't offend you. You have yes. to decide to be offended, right? So something that I said, you've decided to take that as an offense against you and stuff like that. How do you how do you teach the teams to to work through that process of understanding that this is not personal? Yeah. So the first step is to be able to create an environment where they build relationships, right? A culture where people begin to know uh, each other beyond the surface layer of, you know, oh, this is this, you know, this person who works in this department. No, it's get to know the people around you, get to build relationships. And in an environment where we, we have a culture of love, uh, then people are um, able to practice behaviors that enable them to trust people genuinely, right? And from a place of vulnerability and be able to assume good intent, be able to put others' needs before each other. And as and when you bring all of those behaviors and mindsets to the equation where people work with each other, that they're able to easily have those tough conversations or crucial conversations to arrive at consensus versus going into conflict and going their other ways because they understand that they love one another so much so that they, they know that this argument is nothing personal, but in fact, it's in their interest to reach a positive outcome. So that's kind of how we um, emphasize that if you focus on the right culture, even having crucial conversations becomes a lot easier and more productive. Whereas if you try to keep it like superficial, you're not going to be able to work through those difficult situations and difficult scenarios, right? So that's basically the, um, the angle and the approach we take. Absolutely. No, it's good. My wife taught me... Uh few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, we were having a conversation. She said, uh, one of the clients that I'm working with had to confront one of his employees and he was mm -hmm. struggling with it. He did. He's not a, a mean person. So he, he didn't want to come off like he was mean. And my wife and I were talking about the best way to approach that. She said, you know, you don't have to have a confrontation to have a conversation about expectation. If people mm -hmm. know what the expectations are, you can talk about the expectation without it being personal. Right. You know, I, I expect eight hours of work. You've only been here six and a half hours and you're taking off. Right. 
So right. you don't, it kind of avoids a lot of that confrontational aspect of it. When you work with clients or co- companies, do you work at all on their core values? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, so one of the things that we say is that culture is the sum of all behaviors yes. of all individuals. So when you look at values, right, values are just simple statements of, you know, honesty, integrity, care, but really uh, values are nothing without describing the behaviors that ladder up to those values. And right. so to build the right culture, everything we speak about stems from behaviors. You must have heard Peter Drucker's statement, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes. And I, you know, I believe in that wholeheartedly, but sure. there's a saying that we have, which is if culture eats strategy for breakfast, then behaviors eat culture for lunch. Okay. So you cannot build a culture you desire or aspire unless you work on transforming the behaviors of every individual in your organization. And that must start with leadership behaviors. Right. So leaders set the tone. So when you're able to transform the behaviors of leaders, uh, that is only when you can build the culture you desire. Like you said, they're you know, uh, two sides to the same coin, leadership behaviors and culture. Right. So leaders either create or destroy culture. And that happens through their behaviors. So now if we can extend those leadership behaviors to the rest of your organization, that's when you have a great culture because everyone, last seat, last row, no matter where they sit in the organization, practice those behaviors and know that that is expected of them. That's the only way you can live up to your values. But what happens is a lot of organizations focus on values but they do so not from really trying to serve their internal needs of culture, but they'll do it to show to the world, our values are integrity, honesty. And so they made values more of a marketing message sure. and less of a true cultural tenets that they exactly. must live up to. Exactly. No, I totally agree. It has to be tied to behaviors. And to me, honesty and integrity are what we call table stakes. You know, in Las Vegas, right? You have yeah. to have a certain amount of money before you can play at this blackjack table. So it's table stakes in business, honesty, integrity. If you don't have that, you shouldn't be in business to begin with. Right? <laughs> Very <Yeah>. true. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so then when did you write your book? Love is a business strategy. So that's to say, I've been wanting to write the book since 2018, but I really only began writing it in 2020, Okay. early 2020. Uh, it took a while to get started um, and, and it took a while to finish too. But yeah, so um, started early 2020 and released it April 27th, 2021, just about two and a half months ago. Excellent. Good job. And does this cover all the things you do in your, your culture as a service or is this kind of a, a high level overview of what it is? So really this book, wasn't written to talk about our services, but more about the culture of love and how love can be a business strategy. So it is a business book for leaders and aspiring leaders um, in a corporate workplace, but also it can be categorized as a self-help book because it teaches you about your behaviors, introspection, and how to um, practice better behaviors and how to go on this behavior transformation journey. And we do so uh, in a way that's unlike any other business book that at least that I've encountered because our book is just filled with stories of failure <laughs> and stories of how we got it wrong and how we 
um, had to learn from our own lived experiences. So while the book covers our framework, which describes um, how love as a business strategy framework exists and how it can be incorporated into businesses, we do so through very dynamic, empathic storytelling experiences. So if you read this book, it looked like a fiction book, but it's not. It's nonfiction and for business. Very entertaining. Uh, people get hooked onto it. Um, this is all, at least all the feedback I've gotten and the reviews we've gotten. Um, and, you know, we were also able to make it to the Wall Street Journal, uh, number two bestseller. Wow. Um, so, yeah, like I, I feel like we've been able to put out a, um, a book that's unlike other business books. And it speaks about our topic, love as a business strategy. When people look at the t- title, probably think this is a cheesy title. But when you read it, it's nothing but, uh, you know, cheesy. It's really very practical, very relevant with really good takeaways. Um, and probably takes the readers through um, introspection as they read the book as well. Well, uh, you know, there, there's two ways you can do that, right? You can beat them over the head with the two by four, right? This yeah. is what you should do. That's not going to come up with the outcome you're, you're hoping. Or you could tell them stories, let them discover for themselves, wow, I do that. Or wow, yeah. I've experienced that same thing. So I think, I think you've got the right approach with it. Very cool. Thank you. Um, so everything you're talking about, you know, leaving home at an early age to move to the U.S., um, kind of alone, and uh, then going out and starting your own business, that took a lot of courage. Where did you get your courage? Where did you find that courage? Oh, I've never been asked that question. <laughs> I'm a professional. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think... I think, you know, growing up as um, a foreigner in a for like as an expat in a foreign country where you don't feel like you belong or you're not included. You're like, yeah, you're born here, but you're not Saudi. You're Indian. You're this like, you know, like always being kind of left out for being someone different and not fitting the mold. And everything, I think maybe there was a chip on my shoulder to prove that I can belong to, um, you know, a business community and or be successful and can do things that, you know, generally people would assume that, you know, you know, you're a 20 year old, what do you know how to run a business or, you know, like all of the things that would generally look like you're being excluded, I think drove me to prove that, no, I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can get through this. So I think a lot of my courage is probably driven from a sense of trying to feel like I need to be a part of something and I deserve to be a part of something and that I can do it too. And I think, I think a lot of my childhood, like I've introspected on it. And I, I think that's what drove me to have the courage to keep fighting, to keep going, to do the things that generally people would say that you cannot. And I want to try and go do it. <laughs> just not to prove myself. Maybe initially it was selfish that way, right. just to prove my point to others. But now I've just found a, a new calling, which is, you know, it's not about me. It's about everyone else. And I, if I can be an example that others can learn from, especially not an example of being good, but an example of how I got it wrong. Yeah. I'm happy to share that vulnerably and let people benefit from my failures. But did you have a role model that in your, in your past of somebody that was very strong and very 
you know, strong-willed or, or courageous in that way that you kind of took after? I think it may have a lot to do with my father <laughs> because my dad, and this is one of the reasons I think I'm also so passionate about doing things for a corporate workplace environment. So my dad moved to Saudi as an expat to work for an American Arabian oil company. And in that company, it's filled with expats from different parts of the globe. And uh, they openly pay you based on your country of origin. Mm. So your pay slabs are, if you're Indian, this is how much you make. If you're American, this is how much you make. If you're Arab, this is how much you make. So openly, he was, he was knowingly doing a job which he was getting paid one-fifth the salary of his counterpart if they were American or Arab or different nationality. And his entire career there, he had no choice because he had to work to raise five children and he put up with a lot of toxicity, a lot of politics, and a lot of dissatisfaction at his workplace. He would come home every day being really upset at all the things that would go on in the workplace, so much so that I remember as a kid, I felt the pressure of what my dad was going through at his workplace. It impacted the kids, the family. It impacted us. When my dad came home and he was in a bad mood, we all were upset. And it impacted what we did that evening and, and so forth. So as I got into my own journey and I became that oppressive leader, unfortunately, and then I had my moment of realization, I connected the dots. I was like, oh my gosh, I, we need to really focus on bringing back humanity to the workplace. So, you know, not just the employees feel valued, respected, included, and, and feel like they belong to this organization, but also it has a lot of impact on the families, on the children and the extended, you know, uh, ecosystem that the people influence. And so if we're able to bring back humanity to the workplace, then you can make a difference to the community, to the society, and then maybe one day make a difference to the world. And so that's been my passion now. And it's all about like, I think, I think my dad, like what he went through, how he put through all of those toxic behaviors, toxic environments, just to feed our family, what he went through. And I saw him fight courageously to wake up every morning and go work to take care of the family. I think gave me that courage that I got to do the same, but now I'm doing it so that I don't want to see people go through what my dad went through. Um, so that's kind of the goal. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. So t- t- talking about your employees, you had to lay off employees during mm-hmm. your, your downtime. Um, were you able to bring them back? Did they come back? So unfortunately, um, I wasn't able to bring back uh, everyone. But to be honest, I did get a few people who applied back to our organization. But a lot of people, to be honest, I had... I think I had uh, lost my relationships because of the way I, you know, did the layoffs. I did it in a very inhumane way. I didn't even let them say bye to their coworkers. We escorted them out like they were criminals with security officers. It was just very inhumane and I'm still guilty of that. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was my, my way of openly apologizing to every one of them for my misbehaviors and my actions. And I hope that 
they'll read the book and see my genuine um, earnest uh, apology and hopefully seek their forgiveness for what I did back then in 2015. Um, because yeah, I don't have contacts or I'm not in touch with a lot of them. Wow. That's sad, but yeah, I do hope they, they read the book and understand that. So with your employees today, the ones that you have back today and stuff that are with you, if I was to bump into any of them on the road and ask them what kind of leader you are, what would they say? What, what do you think their answer would be? I think they'd say that, um, I'm going to guess here, but I think they'd say that Muhammad is a, is a vulnerable person who is human just like us. He has feelings, emotions, and goes through life like any one of us. And so we understand him and he understands us. And we have a strong relationship that allows us to do uh, great work and make a difference in the world. At least that's what I hope they say. No, that's, I, you, you couldn't ask for anything more than that. That's great. Yes. yes. Good job. So Let's if see. people want to get in touch with you, yeah, what's your website? Where can they find you? Yeah, they can go to our website, softway.com, S-O-F-T-W-A-Y.com. Okay. And if they want to learn um, more about our book or get resources on our book and uh, get a copy of the book, they can go to loveasabusinessstrategy.com. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, I am very active on LinkedIn. You can just look up Mohammed Anwar and plug in software as another key phrase, because I'm sure there are lots of Mohammed Anwar's out there. So um, yeah, Mohammed Anwar and the company software, um, you will easily find me on LinkedIn. And I, I'd be glad to connect with uh, whoever would like to connect with me and ask any questions. Very cool. Well, I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Thank you again awesome. for, for being part of the podcast. No problem. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share my story. I truly appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I'll have you back again. We'll talk about flying. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Let's I, do it. <laughs> I love flying. Flying is an incredibly expensive hobby. Um, That's true. <laughs> unless you're successful and you own your own plane. You own your own plane? No, I did not. Okay. I did not. I, uh, yeah, not, not yet. Good job. Yeah. No, very expensive hobby. All my hobbies are expensive. I don't know why that is. That's the way it works out. All right. Mohammed, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, listeners, hope you guys uh, like this. Hope you were taking notes because there's a lot of good takeaways uh, from this. But check out the website and definitely check out the book, Love is a Business Strategy. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan, saying so long for now. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.